Hey, welcome to the podcast. It's the Kelly Cotrera Show, Monday, November 30th. Today, why the Toronto District School Board is not closing an East End public school with 19 confirmed asymptomatic COVID cases, and how wastewater testing could serve as an early warning system for possible COVID outbreaks in long-term care homes. But first, you hear about the Peel Party? That's going to be the new, uh, you know, the new term, right? It's not going to be a pool party. It's going to be the Peel Party. Should you go to a Peel Party? Yeah, 60 people at a party in Mississauga, Airbnb. And uh, fines were laid, $45,000 worth in fines for those people that decided to uh, attend the party. A lot fled. It was sort of a little bit like uh, the Bush parties we had when we were in high school, where it'd be like, cops, and just scatter. It was a little bit like that. They weren't quite as brazen as the people at Adamson's Barbecue that we saw over the uh, last week. And uh, here to talk about it, go figure, is Joseph Newberger. He's our 640 Toronto legal analyst. Welcome to the show, Joe. Good to have you on. Thank you, Kelly. So Adamson's Barbecue, one of the arrestees, like we know that um, Adam Scully was arrested and led away in handcuffs on, I believe it was Thursday. And he was, you know, uh, seen in court on Friday morning, but he wasn't the only one. There was another guy arrested. And this individual has to take a COVID-19 test as a bail condition. And several lawyers are saying that the requirement is outrageous and likely unlawful. Joe, have to admit, when I first saw it, I thought, good, because the guy spat at police officers. So let's start with the simple fact that spitting on someone, whether they are, it's during a pandemic or not, that's assault, right? It's absolutely assault, yes. Okay. So now, do you agree that this bail condition, you know, having to have a COVID test is unreasonable and likely unlawful, like some lawyers are saying? It's definitely unlawful. A court cannot order somebody to undergo a medical procedure and disclose results of those procedures any more than a court can order somebody to undergo treatment unless it's with consent or where somebody's declared um, incompetent. So this is a, a bail condition where, as I understand, in order to to obtain his release, he had to consent to the term. It's unlawful. It's not enforceable. And it's really not efficacious either. I understand the sentiment behind it. But in order for the officer to be sure that he is COVID-free, unfortunately, he'll have to undergo testing himself in any event. And we've had precedent for this because in some cases with the assault peace officers, there's been individuals who've bitten officers. And then you're worried about the transmission of other types of uh, illnesses through blood. And you can't order um, the uh, accused individual to undergo uh, any testing uh, to determine that they don't have, for example, some other uh, disease that could impact the officer. So this is a 100% unlawful term. So if something like that happens, the officer has to get tested. It's not the actual uh, person that per- 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 you know perpetrated the assault. That is correct. I mean... You know, the the nice thing to do would be voluntarily the person would undergo the test and give the results because it's such a minimal intrusion of their own personal privacy when it comes to medical issues. It's just the results itself, but it cannot be forced upon them by a court. Were you shocked to see that the judge had uh, made it a condition of bail that this guy get tested for COVID-19 and then report back? Not necessarily. You know, tempers are really high right now. I mean, we're seeing, unfortunately... A, a real uh, contrast between those who have a fervid understanding about the impact of COVID-19 and how the health protocols and safety measures are vital to the community at large and then others who feel 
that this is a, a significant intrusion into their privacy. Floating amongst this is the economic damage that this is causing and this trust that some people have with whether the government is giving us accurate information about targeted protocols or non-targeted. So I can tell that, you know, tempers are running a bit high right now. And a court in the, you know, when looking at what had happened that particular day, it's unnecessary for somebody to speed at this spit at a police officer. We can have peaceful protest and proper discourse. So I think tempers are running high right now. And there's a lot of tension. So I'm not necessarily surprised. I think it's overreaching. And unfortunately, the judicial officer went too far. But it doesn't shock me. Okay, Michael Belito Arana is the guy's name. He's from Markham, and he faces several criminal charges, including six counts of assaulting a police officer. I think five of them were spitting. Um, so I understand that he represented himself at the bail hearing on Friday, and that's where he agreed to the COVID test in order to be released um, on on bail. Um, is this a cautionary example of repping yourself? Yes, um, it would have been far better if he had counsel. Duty counsel could have assisted and would have advised the court based upon law that this is not a term that the uh, court can add in. Um, But in any event, I mean, whether he agreed to it or not, it seems that it was a condition precedent to his release. So it's not enforceable. But, you know, it's always better to have counsel and they can explain in a dispassionate, calm way to the court, uh, you know, what's the proper way to go about it. And unfortunately, that didn't happen in this case. I, I was also uh, hearing that several lawyers say this is a, it sets a significantly dangerous precedent that everyone should be concerned about. Would you agree or or would you say that most lawyers would, you know, the precedent really isn't going to be set because most lawyers are going to know what to do? I agree with you. It, this is not precedent setting. That's a bit alarmist. I, I, it's not going to be a trend. This is not the first time we had somebody do something stupid during an inter, uh, altercation with an officer where the officer could possibly be infected. So we've dealt with this before, and it's never become a precedent before, and it won't become a precedent again. Joe, thanks so much for shedding light on this. I really appreciate your time. I mean, I think a lot of people are uh, disgusted by this guy in the middle of a pandemic spitting on on police officers. But I I really wanted to bring you in as our 640 Toronto legal analyst to see, you know, what's going on in in court and what's a a no-go and what's allowable. So thanks for making light of it. Always my pleasure, Kelly. Last week, the education minister announced a new provincial program. It was uh, that they were going to voluntarily test students and staff for COVID-19. The first in the Toronto District School Board to take part in the provincial program happened Thursday and Friday. There were 19 confirmed COVID-19 cases at Thorncliffe Public uh, Thorncliffe Park Public School that were found during this voluntary testing program. Here to talk about it, Ryan Bird from the Toronto District School Board, who um, is... Right now, just so happens, at Thorncliffe Park Public School. Ryan, how you doing? Good morning, Kelly. Good, thank you. So what are you, why are you at the public school? What's, what's the point of having you there? Are you there to talk to parents? Uh, no, for, for me, in my communications role, I'm here to talk to you guys. I'm talking to media who are covering this story uh, this morning, so I've been speaking with them. Okay, so you you need the uh, the school as your backdrop just in case you talk to the TV folks at Global. <laughs> I got it. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's run through this test. How many kids were tested? How many kids and staff members were tested? Uh, so we had testing start on Thursday and Friday and is continuing today. The Thursday and Friday tests, I believe, were 433 tests conducted. Uh, and of those, uh, we had 19, eight, eight stu- or, sorry, 18 students uh, and one staff member come back positive. And this is unique in the sense that they're now testing 
uh, you know, the entire school or those that give permission, including a, a number, obviously, that are asymptomatic. So we right. would anticipate that we would get positive cases coming back. Um, but obviously, when you hear 19 at once, uh, that's concerning. And, and we get that. Yeah, this is asymptomatic staff and students. Um, so they uncovered 19 additional cases. I was reading how many active cases that the school already have. So we had one resolved today. So by the time it's all said and done, we have 21 cases now at the school, uh, obviously a large majority of those being students. Uh, so we have 14 classes that have been asked to self-isolate here at the school, roughly a third of the school. This is, um, well, it's certainly the largest elementary school in Toronto, if not Canada. Uh, so typically they would have 1,400 students here. Uh, now, obviously, during the pandemic, we have about 700, 750 uh, and then obviously 14 of those classes now uh, under self-isolation. Are you finding the majority of parents are happily volunteering their kids for COVID tests? Uh, I don't know the final um, uh, percentage. Last I heard, I think it was around 70% uh, taking part, but I'd have to really confirm that because I'm not sure what day that was based on. Uh, but we do have a, a good number uh, of families obviously taking part. Okay, so 14 classes have been asked to self-isolate now. Uh, they have to self-isolate for how long? Uh, I believe in this case it would be 14 days. Okay, and they, they're they not going to be given a COVID test? There's no way that they can get a COVID test because they've been in contact with the the uh, some of the, the positive staff or students. Obviously, that's why they've been asked to self-isolate. Yeah, so well, many of them would have received a test as part of the testing from last week. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, if they want to go get a test from there, they can contact uh, uh, public health officials, find out where the nearest testing facility is, if that's something they would like to do, given that they've been in contact with someone. Uh, but many of them would have undergone testing Thursday and Friday. Toronto Public Health told the board that it doesn't believe that the school needs to be shut down. What's their reasoning? And, and you know, when they've learned that asymptomatic cases exponentially out, outnumber your symptomatic cases... Yeah, so we take our lead from Toronto Public Health when it comes down to, you know, a recommendation to close a school because they're the medical experts. They know uh, through their contact tracing, their investigation, they know the unique circumstances around all the cases. It's my understanding here uh, that they believe uh, it's not necessarily transmitted within the school, but in the community. Uh, I think that really comes down to one being one of the major factors when they look at whether to close down a school is is there transmission within the school? Is there widespread transmission in the school? Or is it in the community? Now, looking at our positivity rates here, the important thing to keep in mind is, look, we have a 4% positivity rate within the school based on testing um, on Thursday and Friday, and that's asymptomatic. Outside of the school in the community, my understanding is it's about 16%. However, that is largely testing people who have symptoms. So it's Sometimes, you know, it really is comparing apples and oranges, but at the same time, it's the only data that we have at this point uh, to point to. Does the school board have the final say on whether that school gets shut down after Toronto Public Health reaches out and gives you recommendations? Yeah, but it's yes. And in addition, and, and that's not just under a pandemic. In the end, the school board does have the power to shut down a school, but it must be done based on data. And that really is the key part. We take our lead from the medical experts. So when we're dealing with uh, COVID outbreak uh, and, and COVID cases, we want to hear from the medical experts at Toronto Public Health, and we really take our lead from them. Uh, you know, 
in the end, they're the medical experts. They have been the ones that have been doing the investigation. They know the contact tracing. Maybe you have a positive case here at the school, but they might have gotten it from a family friend or relative uh, that they've been close contact with over the last week or two. Uh, So they know that kind of data, and then they make the recommendation to the board to say, based on our investigation, at this point in time, we don't believe a school closure is necessary. All right. Well, the school over the weekend was given a deep clean. What exactly does that entail, Ryan? So each of our learning networks, so we have uh, more than 20 learning networks, grouping of schools across the city have an electrostatic uh, sprayer, essentially. So in a set of... in addition to cleaning high-touch surfaces like handrails, doorknobs, that kind of thing, we can take this sprayer throughout a school, uh, and it really does that extra deep cleaning of, of surfaces. So that's been done here at, that, at this school specifically. And obviously the enhanced cleaning continues multiple times every day, and that's the doorknobs, the, the handrails, those high-touch surfaces wherever you go in the school. Did every classroom get sprayed down by this uh, high-tech uh robotic thing for uh, lack of better terms yeah, yeah. or is it just the classes they were yeah. in uh, my understanding is that the entire school did but at the very least it would be the impacted classes and, and but i do believe that they went through the entire school okay ryan i want to ask you a couple more questions here before yeah. i move on i know that school boards in toronto peel and york the hotspots, are participating in the targeting testing the four schools across Toronto Public uh, Board that have been chosen, how were they chosen and who makes the call? Yeah, so again, we take our lead from Toronto Public Health. So they have all the health data that they look at and can say, we believe that X school should be a recipient of this testing or Y school should be a recipient. Um, and then they obviously talk to us and then we start setting up those dates and what that will look like. Is the testing, you know, in the school? Is it just outside the school? That kind of thing. Are you concerned that because of the high numbers of asymptomatic, I know it's only 4% positivity rate, um, you know, within that school, but 4% is a lot. Um, It used to be a number that alarmed us. I know the community is at 16% positive, but the high number of students that tested asymptomatic um, being we don't know the split, maybe 18 students, one staff member, not sure about that split. Maybe you can yep. uh, clarify that again for me. Do you anticipate a lot of parents getting nervous about that and saying, you know what, I I want to take my kid out of physical class and I want to put them in virtual class? And what's your situation there? Because I know that we were scrambling for teachers and kids were on waiting lists. What do you anticipate will happen there? Yeah, so I, I do appreciate that, especially when you hear of a large jump like we had here at Thorncliffe Park. The, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that all of our health and safety procedures that we have here at this school and all of our schools assumes that COVID is already there. That's why we have masking, hand cleaning, uh, enhanced cleaning of high-touch surfaces, physical distancing, and that kind of thing, and our screening that we do every single morning. We assume that there are asymptomatic cases within our schools at all time, and that's why our health procedures uh, are in place. When it comes to the flip to virtual school, look, we, we understand and we have seen that over recent months that as cases go up, there is an increased uh, number of requests for flipping over to virtual school. The next proposed date uh, is in January, but really we're going to have to look at what that would look like uh, and, and really get an assessment because it's really based on the numbers of the day. When you have higher numbers, there are increased number of requests. 
Uh, so we'll have to see what that looks like come then. Do you guys have a contingency plan in place for, let's say everything gets shut down in January? I'm just worst case scenario. Uh, yeah. Will you have enough teachers ready to go to teach virtually? Yeah. So what we've said from the beginning of the year, even before school started, is everyone should have uh, our online learning platform software. So either Google Classroom or Brightspace have those accounts set up. And that's not necessarily if the entire system gets shut down, but if you have, for example, at this school, you have a case within a class and you have to self-isolate for two weeks, we can more quickly flip to that online learning, that virtual learning uh, for just that time of of self-isolation. But at the same time, it also prepares us to be ready if for some reason the situation calls for a system closure. Uh, So that's something that we've been planning for for some time, and you will be able to make the flip much more quickly uh, then we saw, obviously, back in March, which was just, I think, came as a surprise to everyone. All right. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for your time. Always appreciate having you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Take care. All right. We had very high uh, numbers of COVID-19 positive cases in the province again today. And that, of course, is worrying. Even more worrying is the fact that not everyone is getting tested. That's why wastewater uh, testing is so important when it comes to trying to figure out where COVID-19 outbreaks are happening. And I understand that uh, Canadian researchers are turning to wastewater tests at long-term care homes to detect COVID hotspots there. So we reached out and we have invited Patrick DeWu, PhD candidate and member of the team that's studying wastewater at the University of Ottawa on the show today to talk about it. Welcome to the program. Oh, well, uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Now, could you get us up to speed on why wastewater studies are so important during the pandemic? Because very early on, uh, one of our friends of the show had said, we got to start looking at wastewater. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what happens is, in, you know, in, in urbanized areas, you know, as Toronto, as Ottawa, most large cities in, in Ontario, you know, they're, they're connected to a sewer system, right? We're sewered. Basically, we, we, our wastewater goes to a, a wastewater treatment plant. And the advantage or why it's important to test, I think, wastewater is that really gives public health units and public health, you know, people really a, a finger on the pulse, so to speak, uh, of what's happening in the community. You know, clinical testing is great. Clinical testing, you know, has a fairly large capacity. But however, still, we're, we're talking, you know, thousands, thousands of people, not millions uh, per day. So that's where really wastewater really comes in and to play to its strengths is that we're actually testing, you know, a lot more people for a lot much lower price. But additionally, it's really it's more representative of the whole population as a whole. You know, everybody who has a toilet and uses it and, and you know goes to the toilet you know daily will be contributing and be tested effectively for COVID nineteen. So really, it's a kind of a a all encompassing uh, indicator. You know, you can't target the who of uh, who's got COVID nineteen, who's COVID positive when you're testing wastewater, but. Uh, what can you learn? How many people potentially have it or the percent positivity rating or, you know, what does that tell you? Because obviously it's it's a broad swath of people using the same um, sewer system. Yeah, exactly. So definitely that that's one of the drawbacks and maybe advantages, depending on how you see it. You know, you got less ethical questions when you're doing wastewater and if you're testing individual people. Uh, but but really, you can't 
pinpoint who it is, but then it's it really works to our fit, you know, to to our favor. When we start going up the sewer shed, then you can start targeting, for example, different you know neighborhoods or different different buildings. So I don't think you necessarily want to target you know groups of people. Definitely not. But I think, for example, if we were to approach to put this, and I think you know we we had a story run on the CBC the National last night. Uh, you know, uh, Ottawa U, along with other groups uh, in the province, are, are getting funded actually by the province to actually go and uh, test long-term care homes. So we're actually rolling out this uh, in the coming weeks, hopefully, to actually go and test long-term care homes more often than you would you would get the traditional clinical testing uh, for the staff and the residents, uh, which I think is you know around every week, every two weeks, so so to speak. So while doing wastewater, we could do it every two days, for example, and then you really have a a higher frequency, so people that are asymptomatic, people that don't know they're sick necessarily, but that could be you know in contact with seniors or the seniors themselves. Uh, we we would be able to catch that a lot earlier and be be able to really you know limit interaction and hopefully you know save lives. Now this program you're talking about, how do uh, who chooses what facilities get tested when it comes to long term care homes? Um, and right. is that so, going to be in the government's hands? Um, I I believe so. I think it's it's really going to be I, my my gut feeling. So that that you know obviously I'm in the lab uh, and I'll be you know installing so the systems in the Ottawa region. Uh, and there's other groups I know in the Toronto region that will be doing this as well. Uh, I think the decisions might be, we might be moving. I think my gut feeling is, and it's not, you know, in, in stone, set in stone or anything, but my gut feeling is that we're going to be moving from facility to facility as there is out, as we think there might be outbreaks or, or facilities that have had a history of maybe having more outbreaks or, or you know, more cases overall throughout the, you know, the, the, the pandemic from, from the get-go. I think we will target the, the more at-risk facilities first. I think that would be the logical thing to do. Uh, but definitely, uh, I can't speak to what, what what would be basically who who would be tested basically first. Uh, but but right. I know I think it's probably going to be kind of a to limit risk and, and you know have the the most the most effective monitoring plan. So how are you going to be able to specifically test the wastewater in long-term care homes? Will you um, hook up to the sewer pipe that comes out of the long-term care home and goes into the the street sewer? How does that work? Uh, well, exactly. I think that's going to be the one of the the biggest challenges, and I think that the most interesting challenges for me. You know, I have a I'm doing molecular biology now in the lab, but you know, I have a civil engineering background, so really it's going to be looking at you know the sewer system and and you know see if the buildings have you know one exit, two exits, and, and really go. It's either going to be you know inside the buildings themselves, for example, through a sewer cleanout in the facility, install an automatic sampler there, or it could be as well you know street level, very close parking lot, wherever the the you know the the manhole is installed at the facility at the site itself so, you know you could set up you know a small small you know cabin or shed have your automatic samples installed there and then you would be basically that's correct just taking samples from the pipes leaving the building doing very high frequency uh sampling so basically having an automatic sampler to collect you know water it could be even every couple minutes every 15 minutes or so to try to get a picture of what's happening throughout the day and then with that way you could actually test every day see okay what's what's representative of the wastewater that came out uh over that last 24-hour period and then you'd have, you know, I think a, a faster response system, kind of as like a smoke alarm, you know, to, to basically tell you, hey, you know, if you've got any signal, that's a sign that, you know, we, basically we we have something. And that that's, the, the, I guess, the maybe the advantage or the disadvantage. But I think in this case, uh, because we only need to know that we have positives, we don't need mm-hmm. to necessarily quantify. So compared to like, you know, I don't know if you guys heard what we're doing in Ottawa, but basically we're providing, you know, daily data seven days a week to the city of Ottawa, Ottawa Public Health, but we're doing testing and we're quantifying. So we, we actually have a level, we normalize the data, and there, people are actually tracking trends now as to what's happening to signal. Is it going up? Is it going down week to week? And, and, and you know, in long-term care homes, really, it's just 
if you have zero, that's good. If you have any signal, then that's where you take action. Yeah, one one case is deadly, so you need exactly. to act as quickly as you find it. Um, so, how quickly can you do the testing? Because we, you know, we have issues with labs when we're talking about testing for COVID. When you're talking about wastewater, how long does it take to test? Exactly. So, so basically, when we started out, you know, when we started out in April, so we're fairly long in a tooth now in, in terms of COVID testing and, and wastewater in Canada. But we started out; our method was taking about 24 to 30 hours. But we've throughout may various iterations now we're actually down to approximately seven and a half hours or so um from the time we get the sample into the lab so right now for example when we're doing testing in ottawa by the time we get if we get samples in for example by 8 a.m in the morning uh where we've got results by 2 33 uh, p.m the same day so we're, we're, we're able to do same day reporting essentially uh if we get the samples quick enough in the lab okay and i'm guessing they've they've already set out some sort of reporting um reporting arms so that you can get back to the long-term care home, uh, notify them or the public health unit that's responsible for that long-term care home. Yeah. So this hasn't been rolled out yet. We just got, you know, funds very, very recently. So uh, I'm guessing we're going to start rolling out the the equipment. We have all the equipment, uh, you know, at at our facility, how do we use? So the automatic samplers, everything. So now it's going to be just a game of, you know, uh, actually rolling it out in, in the coming weeks. Yeah, testing is key, but so is communication. You're going to have to get it, sound the alarm, and allow uh, the powers that be in those long-term care homes to, I guess, really tighten that iron ring. Exactly. All right. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on the program. Uh, this is, I think, it's an important step we're taking on on keeping our seniors safe, and hopefully, we'll talk to you and check in with you and see how things are going as the uh, as the program gets underway. Thank you very much. Well, absolutely. I'm glad to be here. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Give you updates as they come as they come by. Well, that's it for the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, we broadcast live Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Join us if you can.